Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. And we are still marching our way through the parables of Jesus. I bet before this year you didn't realize how many parables there, there are in the New Testament. We're only looking at two books. Uh, we, may, we may sneak over to the Gospel of Mark in a few weeks. But uh, um, and we've actually skipped over quite a bit. So Jesus loved to... Um, love to use illustrations for the purpose of his teaching, which would have, would have been common among the rabbis at this time. Luke 16, picking up really where we left off last week, the end of the prodigal and pharisaical sons, ends chapter 15, and then here we pick up in chapter 16. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We want to read the first 13 verses. Luke the evangelist writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. If you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me and I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said, Take your bill, write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a little, very little, is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth and hands and our feet, that you would transform us, use us for your good, and we will become more like Jesus. Lord, this is, this is a difficult uh, a passage for us to, to interpret and to apply, so may we be faithful to the text. May I decrease so you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. See you. I don't know if... Uh, what this says about me, but I, I, I do enjoy reading about criminals who, who aren't all that bright. Uh, is, is that a nice way of putting it? I, I, I'm really trying to be diplomatic here, uh, but I love reading them. Uh, I love reading about their stories, how they got caught, why they got caught, how, how foolish their plan was and all that sort of stuff. I got like five here, but, but for, for the sake of, of your time, can I just read to you two of them? All of these come from uh, World Magazine. They, they always have a little blurb in their um, bi-monthly magazine uh, of this, and I love reading them. Um, let's see. Let's, let's do uh, uh, this one. A criminal in Dayton, Ohio, may have robbed a bank, but he chose what some would call a politically correct getaway vehicle. Dayton police say the suspect, whom they did not identify, hopped on board a public bus minutes after robbing a key bank branch on March 16th, a few years ago. 
Alerted to his getaway method by witnesses, police were able to catch up to the bus a mile down the road and arrest the man without incidents. You do with that whatever you want, but I would think that if you get on a public transit carrying loads of cash you recently stole from the bus, someone's going to notice. Another one, for a trio of car robbers, an accidentally placed 911 call was more than an embarrassment. It was their downfall. The group of thieves were attempting to snag a car in Middletown, New York, when one of their cell phones accidentally dialed 911 while resting in his pocket. When a dispatcher picked up the call, he heard everything. Quote, I got some guys on the phone. It's a cell phone, but it sounds like they are ripping off a car said the dispatcher who picked up the call, according to WCBS Radio. By the time the robbers hung up the phone, uh, the dispatcher had gotten enough GPS information to direct police to the local auto body shop where the thieves were stashing the vehicle. Let's just do one more. Why not? I just love these. Um, Here's one. Uh, Vanity got the best of Levi Charles Reardon, when he liked the Cascade County Montgomery or Montgomery Montana Facebook page, he liked his own wanted picture because it displayed a wanted poster of himself. A staffer at the Great Falls Tribune took a screenshot of Reardon's Facebook activity and forwarded it to law to to law enforcement authorities. By April 24th, Reardon had been arrested. Police accused the 23-year-old of felony forgery after stealing a wallet and passing forged checks. Now, how vain do you really have to be to like your own wanted poster on the police Facebook page? Well, I, I, I think the word you would not use to describe these criminals would be the word shrewd. But if you know anything about this parable, or perhaps even in the subtitle in your Bible, you would see this manager described as the shrewd manager. He is indeed shrewd. That doesn't make him any less of a crook. He might have been creative in how he was cooking books, but he's a crook nonetheless. Let's start with, with the, uh, the parable here in, in verses 1 to 9. You'll notice there in verse 1, he also said to the disciples. Now, this suggests that, that Jesus, in the context we saw in chapter 15, while he's dining with sinners, he, he tells those three stories for, for that purpose. But here in chapter 16, uh, Luke wants us to see a connection between uh, the previous parables and what he has here. And there have been many attempts to, to show how they are related. But we should notice that there is a linguistic connection. That is found in chapter 15, verse 13. The word used to describe the prodigal squandering, or your translation may say wasting money, is the same word used here to describe the, the manager wasting or mismanaging, squandering his master's money. And so, so the, the connection is clearly there. The, just as the prodigal son mismanages and squanders his, his father's wealth, his inheritance, so too this guy will squander his wealth. So many people show that, that Jesus is really zeroing in on this specific area of the prodigal's life, and that is the mismanagement of money. Nonetheless, he is, he is in charge of his master's finances. He's to make investments. He's to make sure that people who, who have borrowed from him pay everything back and, and all the books are ready to go. The problem is, is he has mismanaged his master's wealth. And so we see there 
In verse 2, uh, he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You will no longer be manager. Let me put this a different way. You fired. Right? I couldn't help but, but wonder what it was like for, for this man to, to, to wake up in the morning and he's eating breakfast. He's reading the local newspaper, following stocks, doing whatever it is this manager would do. He's having breakfast with, with his bride and she says, honey, you got anything going on today? She said, no, be, be pretty standard day. But, you know, there's one odd thing is the big man, the boss, wants to meet with me first thing in the morning. I wonder what it's about. And, of course, what does he do? He, he gets the work. And what does the boss do? The master of the house, he says, you are simply fired. And if fired, he is. Now, this, of course, creates a problem. If you lose your job, that creates a problem. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. And one of the big problems is you no longer have a source of income. There is no unemployment insurance here. There is no Social Security. There is no retirement. There isn't any of that. You either work or you starve. That really is... What? (laughs) Stimulus. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not time for me to get worked up. That comes later in the sermon. But uh, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, there's no stimulus either. Although Caesar did try something like that at one point, and it worked about as well as ours well. Well, um, uh, so, so this does create a problem. And so he, he lays out the problem there in, in verse 3. You see it there. He, he, says, uh, he says to himself, Self, what shall I do since my master has taken the management away from me? He's fired me. I'm not strong enough to dig. He doesn't want to do manual labor. Uh, nor is he humble enough to, to beg. These really are your options. But right now, I could get you a job. I could put you on a farm. There are plenty of farmers looking for workers, right? If you're looking for a job bad enough, I can get you a job. There are plenty of factories in this community looking to hire. I can get you a job. The question I, or the issue that I, I get a lot of people who say, if you see any jobs open, let me know. I can give you about a dozen right now, right? And often the reason those don't work out is because we don't want those kind of jobs. I remember it wasn't long ago when, when we were really struggling and, and some issues came up and, and someone offered me a job, literally digging ditches and hauling rocks. Uh, they were building cabins out by, by the lake. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I dug ditches for eight hours and I'd come home uh, smelling the high heaven, just stinking and sweating and everything else and, and hauled rocks. And, and I've got video of, of the big uh, truck and dropping off uh, rocks so that we can dig them because my son loved, loved, you know, trucks and all that sort of stuff. So I'd videotape that and, and everything. And, and I remember thinking the whole time, I will do anything to provide for my family. I just don't want to do this for very long, right? <laughs> you know, but, but, but perhaps, perhaps you've been in, in that situation, but he doesn't want to be in that situation. So what he does is he comes up with a plan, a scheme, if you will. Now, the scheme is laid out in verses 4 to 8. Now, there, there's a lot of debate as to how to interpret this, and, and I don't really think it's worth uh, going a lot, a lot of the details because it shouldn't affect our conclusions or our, our, our application of the passage. So let me give you just really two options first. The first is that this man renegotiates for his master. Now, the, the first problem you're going to notice here is, is the, the master gives this guy time to scheme. So he fires him, but he says, turn in your books. Well, he needs to just say, you're fired. 
right? We'll clean out your locker for you. This is why if someone is laid off, it, there's a reason why it needs to be immediate oftentimes, right? And this guy is going to scheme. And so he renegotiates all the contracts. He would have dozens of them. You can see him picking up the phone. He's, he's hiding behind the water cooler so no one can, can hear what it is that he's doing. And, and so he renegotiates these contracts. Now, you need to know that Jewish law at this time uh, did not allow you to charge interest with another Jew. So if someone borrowed $100 from you, you cannot charge them 10% interest. They're not going to owe you $110. They're going to pay you back $100. However, if you know anything about business, you know anything about politics, you know that every law that exists exists because someone found a loophole. Right? I mean, this is why you, you, the, the, the law books of this, this country and this state and this community are... are uh, uh, crazy long. And so, much like business people do today, this, these business people figure out a way around it. And it's, it's really not that creative. It's kind of common sense. What you would do is, is you would charge them with interest in the principal. You wouldn't call it interest. You would just call it principal. So yeah, you may have borrowed $100 from the bank to, to buy whatever it is you needed to buy for, for the house. But you're going to get a bill for $120. Now, it's not interest. It's fees. You see, you see that? You see that? You ever get your cell phone bill? You're thinking, I don't remember signing up for that. They just made these numbers up, right? You ever get you know, your, your electric bill, your light bill, any, any sort of bill you're going to get, you're going to see numbers that, that you don't remember signing that dotted line. By the way, the same thing happens with taxes. Whenever you, you say, yeah, stick it to the man, well, guess what the man's going to do? He's going to stick it to you. You can raise taxes on business all you want to, but business is going to raise it on you. Now, businesses exist to make money, not to pay taxes. Right? I, don't, I don't understand why, why this is a rocket science. And so if their bill goes up, your bill then goes up. Right? It is very simple. Now, they won't say we're charging you interest for taxes or we're charging you extra taxes, right? They won't say that. It's just the cost of, of bread will go up, you know, and whatnot. So, so, so th this, is, this is really all they're doing. So, so what he does is the manager renegotiates the contracts knowing these guys borrowed $100, but they're being asked to pay $200. He says, I'll tell you what, uh, I will re renegotiate the contract. Now, so long as he's manager, he has all the authority in the world to do this. And, and these guys are used to dealing with the manager who's representing the master rather than dealing with the master himself. So they assume this guy has the authority to renegotiate these contracts. Now, think about it. If you owe someone $20,000, but you'd originally borrowed $10,000, and the, the, the bank shows up and says, you know what? Don't worry about that other $10,000. Just give us $10,000. Would you do everything you can to sign the dotted line? Of course you would. You just saved quite a bit of money. And so we, we see that here, right? One borrows 50 measures of oil. The debtor uh, uh, now charges him 50 instead of the original 100. Another one was, had borrowed 80 measures of wheat. The debtor now is charged 80 measures of wheat, not 100. And the reason this is shrewd is because at the end of the day, the manager can go to these debtors and say, you owe me. I basically gave you X amount of dollars, 50 uh, uh, measure or 80 measures of wheat, or I guess it'd be 20 measures of wheat and 50 measures of oil. You owe me. While the manager or the master rather can say to the manager, you got me. You got me. Because he knows he isn't going to report the manager because then it's just going to come back 
on him. There is another view worth looking at, and I go back and forth between these. This is why I want to share them both with you. Again, it shouldn't affect our conclusion. And that is that what he does is, is he embezzles his master. So the first renegotiate, that's the first view. The second view is he embezzles. He goes through all the contracts and renegotiates the entire debts and offers prices that, that favors him but robs his master. This is embezzlement. Essentially, he is discounting the debt as a favor. He says it there in the text, I need a job. And what I need is one of these debtors to hire me. And so I'm going to scratch their back so they can scratch mine. This is the way it works in the political system, isn't it? Like once you get in there, you never are going to leave, right? Um, and um, and this, this is exactly what, what, what we see going on here. Uh, now remember that in Jewish culture, when someone does you a favor, you are expected to return that favor. So if this guy just saved you 50 measures of oil or 20 measures of, of, of grain or whatever, wheat, I believe it was, then, then you, you kind of owe them. And so if he comes around saying, hey, uh, how about a, a job? And uh, I'm clearly good at negotiating contracts. I'm clearly good at saving you money. It would be hard to turn him down. And so he does all of this for his own benefit. But what can the master do to this guy? Can't fire him. He's already done that. So he is shrewd in how he, he deals with it. And in fact, with this latter interpretation, which is probably the more prominent one, uh, we see the manager not just shrewd, but very sinister. Well, that's the parable, right? So it's pretty straightforward about business practices and would have been common at this time. But what do we do with the practice? Like, well, what does Jesus want us to get out of this? So what does the shrewd businessman have to do with holy living? A couple of points to make here. First of all, most agree the manager is crooked. I think that's pretty clear. Whether he renegotiates or embezzles, he's pretty crooked. He mismanages his master's wealth and then works around the system for his own benefit. Jesus is not saying, to be clear, be like this manager. This is one of the things that, that, that's really stuck out to me as we've gone through these parables and really focus in on them, is, is sometimes Jesus uses bad characters as an illustration to, to tell us something about godly living. Uh, MacArthur points this out. He says that frankly, uh, frequently Jesus followed a rabbinical pattern of teaching from lesser to greater. The little phrase, how much more, if an unjust judge will do this, what will God, who is a just judge, do? If an irritated man will open the door just to get rid of you, what will a God who loves you do when you knock on his door with a need? If a wicked, evil man is shrewd in the use of money that he has access to, what will you do? It's from the lesser to the greater. And the rabbis love to teach this way as did Jesus. So he's not saying, be like this shrewd, crooked guy. What he is saying is, if this guy can figure this out, he's pretty crooked. How much more so can we apply this to, to holy, holy living? And do think about it. If, if you're reading the story about a bank robbery, or maybe you're watching a movie or a classic story about a bank robbie. You, you, you can marvel at the creativity, but you're never going to say, well, give them points for creativity. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll just get, let them keep the money. You know, we wouldn't say that at all, right? We, we recognize that a crime has been committed here, but still say, well, it's real shrewd in how they, they pull that, that crime off. 
So then, what, what do we do with, with this? What, what is the point Jesus is making here? I think there's three points of application worth highlighting that Jesus wants us to see as laid out in verses 8 to verse 13. The first point is that your future matters. Your future matters. Remember the Great Recession 2007-2008? It was pretty rough. Uh, I remember it well. We were new parents and still figuring out just what it means to be an adult, <laughs> let alone the entire economic system. In 2008, Warren Buffett gave $3 billion to GE. Now, wouldn't you love to have in your back pocket $3 billion? I mean, you know, he's like, hey, whoever runs GE, I'll have my people call you, right? <laughs> I mean, you need $3 billion? Have I got a deal for you? He did have a good deal. It's a very shrewd deal. With that $3 billion investment, he helped keep GE afloat. In return, Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, which Warren Buffett runs, they were given $3 billion in preferred stock and warrants on GE at $22.25 per share at any time over a five-year period. So no matter how high those stocks went up, they got them at a premium price. Plus, Buffett got a 10% dividend on the preferred shares. In the end, GE paid the $3 billion back to Warren Buffett, plus the 10% premium for the preferred shares in 2011. This indeed is shrewd business deal. He made it off. He was able to buy himself and, and everyone else around him dinner. That's what I'm trying to get, right? A very shrewd business deal. Now, here's the question. What good is that when it comes to eternity? A shrewd investor cares for both his immediate and future needs. This shrewd manager mismanaged his master's wealth, but he secured his own financial future before he walked out of that door. Isn't that way we live our lives? This is why we today, we have retirement plans. We have investments, savings, insurance. We have all of these things so that, so, so that yes, we, we, we want today to be secure, but we also want to invest in our future. One of the things I've noticed in following um, particularly presidential campaigns, this happens in every campaign, is during the primary season, right? You, this, this candidate has all these staffers. But after Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina or Florida or wherever it is that they, they, they bow out, they'll quit, right? And it isn't long before this campaign staffer, whose job it was, was to tear down this campaign, is now working for that campaign. Have you ever noticed this? Right? And, and now why is that? Because, yes, they may believe this guy or gal is the best option. But what they care about most is their own financial future, right? They need a job. And sure, this guy may not be the best option, but he'll do, right? That's every uh, presidential campaign I've ever seen. Now, if this is true for ungodly investors, how much more should it be for us who invest primarily in eternal things? This is what he's saying, particularly in verses 8 and 9. Um, the master committed the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by me and other righteous well, so that when it fails, they may receive you into, into eternal dwelling. What he's saying here is that life is a vapor. Why then do we invest so much in it? 
Isn't this James' point in James chapter 4? What is life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Vanishes. Jesus is not suggesting that wise investments and good financial planning are ungodly, but rather that we, as sons of light, should invest in something more eternal. So then what do we mean, or what does Jesus mean here, by investing in our future? Well, do the words like love, charity, mercy, kindness, justice, grace, forgiveness, faithfulness, generosity, these words mean anything to us? Do you work as hard for your eternal investments as you do your temporal ones? In Matthew 25, Jesus describes himself as the final judge. And I trust you're familiar with this text, right? You remember that Jesus says, look, I'll, I'll divide right to left, sheep and goats. And I'll look to ones on the right and I'll say, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, right? All this sort of stuff. He says, when I, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me something to drink. And then what, what are those on the right going to say? Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you naked? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. That is an investment in an eternal future. What about Jesus in Matthew 6 where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and inflation destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and government cannot uh, cause inflation. Right? Don't invest in those things. He's not against it. He said, don't make it your, 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 your future and your hope is in those things. After all, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, the old saying goes. I think a, a good illustration of this is actually comes from John Piper. His most famous sermon was preached at a passion uh, uh, event uh, in the 1990s called You Have One Life, Don't Waste It. This is really the genesis of his Don't Waste Your Life uh, uh, books and, and all that sort of stuff. And he tells a story of how uh, there were two members of his church who had died overseas doing mission work. They were two elderly ladies who were retired nurses who had spent their retirement in this third world country uh, giving out vaccines and helping with, with basic needs. And what happened was they were on a bus going to the next uh, mission field or whatever they were doing, and, and the bus simply fell off a cliff and they died. He says, you've got to ask yourself, here are two women who have lived full lives. What are they doing spending their, the end of their life, the latter years of their life, overseas with third world country giving little kids shots? Why do that? He says, now, now, now compare that to this, this American dream vision that we have here. And there he reads from Reader's Digest. For you millennials and Gen Zers, you may want to Google that. Or just go to uh, any Goodwill. You'll find volumes of Reader Digest reading lists, right? It's, it's the abridged of all those books. Just You've you, you got plenty of homework now. Just read Reader's Digest. But, but the article they had in Reader's Digest he was highlighting was called Start Now, Retire Early. And in that article, it describes how a couple had retired early. They, they had saved all this money. They made all these investments. They worked all these years. They retired early, and they were spending their retirement collecting shells, collecting shells. And then he concludes with this. He says, look, the day will come when we will stand before God, and we will give account to everything we do. He says, what would this couple say? They will look at the Lord and says, look, Lord, our shell collection this is what we've done with the time you've given us. Our shell collection. Of course, it's madness, isn't it? 
But that is the American dream you are being sold. That I have been sold. Your future matters. Your future in this life and in the next matters. Secondly, your stewardship matters. The secular world knows one cannot be trusted with much until proving they are competent with a little. Isn't that what you see there in verse 10? One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. This is a biblical principle we, we, we see throughout. But we also understand even in the secular world this makes sense. That's why we, we don't like nepotism. Right? Uh, if, if, if it's perceived that someone has this position because their uncle runs the, the company or because their daddy got him the job or whatever it might be, it really bothers us. I heard a sports broadcaster complain one time that they, uh, here they are, they, they, they've invested their entire career in, in this, and they went to school for this, and they have, they have been mentored by the best. And he says it gets frustrating. There's limited jobs in the field, but athletes who, don't, who know nothing about the art of sports broadcasting are given jobs because they're a recognized name. Now, that's not nepotism, but it, it's similar to that, isn't it? There's that feeling that maybe they haven't earned it quite yet. Whatever your opinion is about sport broadcast, I really don't care, nor do I think it matters. But we do love stories, right, of those who, who start at the bottom of a company and work their way up. Can I give you a few examples of that? Mary T. Barra is the CEO and chairwoman of General Motors. At age 18, she worked on the assembly line inspecting hoods and fenders. Doug McMillan, a great last name if you're going to be the CEO of Walmart, he began working at Walmart while in high school. He took a job loading trucks at a Walmart distribution center in order to save for college. He was earning $6.50 an hour, which I believe was probably above the minimum wage at the time. My minimum wage when I worked at the store in high school was like five-something. Finally, Chris Rondeau, I didn't pronounce his name right, he's the CEO of Planet Fitness. In 1993, he joined the company as a front desk receptionist in New Hampshire. 20 years later, he rose to the ranks to become its CEO. You look at him, you think, there's no way that guy can pick up a phone without crushing it. But he started as a receptionist. We love these stories, right? But it's a simple principle he has here. Those who are trusted with a little can be trusted with more. Those who are dishonest with a little are going to be dishonest with more. Can I prove this to you? Lottery winners. Athletes. Here's the reality. If, if, if you're going from, from being dirt poor and in debt, and now you've inherited $100 million before taxes, so $20, guess what? It will not be long before you're out of that money. ESPN has an entire 30 for 30 documentary that chronicles this among athletes. And then they show why is it that there's, there's a, a, an epidemic of, of uh, athletes who, who, who are paid millions, tens of millions of dollars only within a few years of retirement to be completely broke and bankrupt. Why is that? Well, they give all these reasons for, for this and that. But let me tell you what, what it comes down to. If you can't be trusted with a little, you can't be trusted with a lot. You certainly can't be trusted with an overwhelming amount overnight. So, too, if you are dishonest with a little, you will be dishonest with much. The same is true with your spiritual journey. Maybe you want God to do more with your life. 
Are you faithful with what God has trusted you with now? If you can appreciate the blessings that God has given you now, perhaps then he'll give you more. But if you're bitter about where you are right now, will anything change with more? You may want to change the world, yet you're unwilling to offer simple prayers, memorize verses, or share your faith. How will you be trusted with more if you can't be trusted with the simple? Isn't this Jesus' point elsewhere in Matthew 25? Uh, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will sit you over much. Enter to the joy of your master. You see there in verse 12, with, with the, the connection with, with the parable there. If you have been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? That's a clear connection to the parable, right? It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? That when this shrewd manager was asked to handle the finances of someone else, he mismanaged it. But when he was asked to handle his own finances, well, he could be quite competent with that, can he? He cared about his financial security but was incompetent with someone else's. This reminds us of, of the parable we saw several weeks ago in Luke chapter 12. If you remember, it's, it's the guy, he's going to build all these big barns and he's going to sit back and relax, you know, collect seashells, of course. And what did Jesus say? I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And like this rich fool that we see here in Luke 12, we see that we care about our preferences. We, can't, we don't care about anyone else's. So too, like those rich fools, too many of us fail to see that we are managers of God's blessings. All that we possess is God's. It's easy to apply that to something like charity and generosity, isn't it? How many of us will say that I will be generous when I have enough? Does that ever happen that way? No. No. Generosity doesn't start out of abundance. It comes out of a heart of faith. A lot of people who have things in abundance who are just as tight now as they were when they were just making it by. In fact, statistics show that. Your future matters. Your stewardship matters. Finally, your worship matters. That's his point there in verse 13, isn't it? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, chapter 16 zeroes in on the issue of wealth and our relationship to it. And this text makes it very clear, particularly the last line there in verse 13. And I think it's pretty obvious that throughout all of human history, wealth, power, and, and, and stuff like that, are it's a universal idol. And we don't need to look any farther than the rise of the prosperity heresy among American evangelicalism, right? The prosperity heresy is only something that can happen in a rich country like America. The prosperity heresy did not stem from third world Africa. It comes from the United States, where we see ourselves as consumers and getters. And so if we can make God someone who must fulfill our entitlements... That'll sell. It'll sell. And so, so, so the prosperity heresy makes sense in American context. However, we don't have to give the charlatans on twisting the Bible nightly still, and, and, and still not fall for it. 
We fall for it whenever we, we tell ourselves that a, a life lived faithful to the church entitles us to a life apart from suffering. We do this all the time, right? How many people have abandoned the gospel, abandoned faithfulness to the local church because something bad happened to them? A tragedy struck. What are we communicating there? We were trying to worship two saviors. We were serving two masters. And when asked to choose between one of them, we chose the wrong one. This is what Jesus is warning here. You cannot serve both God and your idol. If, think about it this way. If you possessed all that you desired, everything you ever desired, wealth, family, respect, power, influence, you name it, and you had all of it, yet you lacked one thing, Jesus wasn't there, would you call that world heaven? Likewise, if you possessed nothing you ever desired, wealth, family, respect, power, influence, but all you had was Christ and him to the fullness, would you call it heaven? The answer to that question will determine whether, whether or not we've chosen to, to serve God and God alone or if we do in our heart of hearts choose our idols. Isn't this what we saw with the rich young ruler? He wants to serve two masters, and Jesus demands choose one. Because it isn't just that your future matters or your stewardship matters, but your worship matters. Choose today your Savior or your idol. Well, I think it's clear Jesus doesn't want us to mimic a shrewd, crooked manager. But he does want us to learn from him. May we invest in eternity the way this man invests in his own life. May we invest in the kingdom. May we invest in the glory of God. Let's pray.